I think it very interesting that you can speak on the cross anytime during the year. You can speak on the resurrection anytime during the year. But when it comes to the incarnation of the Lord, it seems like people think you can only do it during December. Well, it's still December, but I think it's an appropriate subject just about any time in the year. And I want you to read with me again the beginnings of the Christmas story here, and then I'll complete it later in the message. So read with me Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. Why don't you all read it with me aloud today and uh, be involved here with me. All right, let's begin. And it came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. And this taxing was first made when Cyrenius was governor of Syria. And all went to be taxed, every one into his own city. And Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea under the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be taxed with Mary, his espoused wife, being great with child. And so it was that while they were there, the days were accomplished that she should be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the end. Thank you, and you may be seated. Well, the subject this morning is the fear knots of Christmas. The fear knots of Christmas. You know, we're living in such a time of fear. There's so much anxiety and stress and apprehension and worry. The levels are just uh, out the top on all of those things. There's a lot, lot of sickness, obviously. There's a lot of death, obviously. And so people are living in a high-stress time right now. And, you know, sickness itself creates stress on people. And if it's very serious at all, it creates a certain fear. And in our society today, I think our fears and stresses have been exacerbated by the fact of the, uh, the media around us. I don't want to get on a rant this morning. I'm not going to do that. That's not my subject. But I can tell you this, that uh, if America today has a problem, it's the secular media in this country. My, how they've exacerbated every fear, how they just play upon it and create panic in people. And over and over and over, they have been so wrong. I don't know about you, but boy, I don't believe anything they say. I don't waste much of my time anymore watching the so-called mainstream media. For example, right now, their big thing right now is, now there's a new strain of the virus over in England, and it's coming this way, and we think maybe it's already in California. And the way they present that, it just, it just throws... Uh, gas on the flames of fear that people already feel. Well, I heard this doctor last night, and I've, I've listened to him. I have a little bit of a confidence in him. And he says, well, so what? That every virus mutates. We know that because last year's flu shot doesn't work this year. 
In fact, this year's flu shot doesn't work sometimes this year. So he says, you know, every virus is constantly mutating. So it's changing constantly. And so we should not be surprised that this virus is changing. Then he added this, first positive thing I think I've heard at all. He said, and as viruses mutate, generally speaking, not always, but most of the time, they lose their strength. And they begin to weaken and are not near at, nearly as virulent after a period of time as they were when they first came on the scene. Well, see, that's positive. But you haven't heard that on the news, have you? So I bear you good tidings of great joy here today. But the point being is that our fears are always being fed, and there's this panic and this stress in the air. And it's robbed us of so many things that make life worth living. You know, above everything is the relationships that we have in life that makes life palatable, makes it worth living. To be able to sit with a friend and fellowship with them across the table, just have a meal with people, and to be able to hug people and uh, shake their hand and stand and talk with them and not have to be 20 feet away from them or something, you know, it, it, and we miss that. There's an event that happened a week or two ago. The residents of a Colorado nursing home, all these older people got so sick of all this uh, isolation and so on. They literally got in their wheelchairs and rolled out into the common area, this big nursing home out there, several hundred people. And they got together uh, against the rules of the nursing home. <laughs> they just went out there and did it. And one fellow had a sign, and they had it in one of the magazines, and it said, I'd rather die of COVID-19 than I would of isolation and loneliness. Well, you know, I think the man made a point, didn't he? A very legitimate point that God made us as social beings. He made us to relate to people, to be around people, to, to love one another. And when we, that's taken away from us, when that's stripped away, then life is very barren indeed. Now, having said that, telling you about our time, and you already know most of that, but in the Christmas story itself, the Christmas story is a story full of fear. And as I read over the Christmas story again this season, because of the context and what was in my mind about it, I noticed that four times in the Christmas story itself that it said, fear not. Four times somebody is afraid, and four times God's message to them is fear not. So take your Bible, and I hope you'll look with me. And number one, let's continue reading right here the story that we've already partially read. Fear not, because salvation has come would be my first point. Now, in verse number eight, there were in the same country shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock at night. Lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them. What did that angel look like? Was he 12 feet high? What, did he have the appearance of a, of a man? Or was it in some other form? The Bible doesn't say. An angel is a ministering spirit, according to Hebrews chapter 1. And so the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone around about them. The sky lit up, as it were. And they were sore afraid. Sore afraid means, I mean, they were really afraid. They were terrified. I mean, they were paralyzed with fear when they saw this sight. And 
the angel of the Lord said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior. Circle that word Savior in, in your Bible. A Savior who is Christ the Lord. So these terrified shepherds are out in the field. It's black, dark at night. Nothing spectacular going on. They're tending their flock of sheep. And suddenly, it's as though all the lights of the universe have turned on. The glory of God shone around them. And this angelic figure appears. And what is his message to them? The very first thing he says to them is, don't be afraid. Fear not, in verse number 11, because I'm bringing you some good news today, some tidings of great joy. And what is the great joy? The great joy is in verse 11, the Savior is born. And so my point to you is, fear not, salvation has come. Boy, that'd be a good message for the whole world to hear, wouldn't it? So I'm preaching today to just a little handful of people in Florence, South Carolina. I wish somehow I could preach that message to the whole world. Fear not, salvation has already come. Now circle that word Savior. I want you to get a hold. I want you to drain that of a little bit of, of meaning that you might not otherwise. And what does it mean to save? Why do we call him the Savior? A Savior is one who delivers us from some peril, from some potential harm. And so Jesus Christ here is the one who can deliver us from harm, from peril. He is the one who can take away our fears. And how does the Lord Jesus Christ save us? Well, number one, he is the one who can deliver us from the penalty of sin. Now, most of us in here today, I recognize you and you're professing Christians. You know the Lord Jesus Christ. You've accepted him. And so, uh, remember these things about his salvation. First of all, Jesus has saved us from the penalty of sin. The penalty of sin is the wages of sin is death. Death comes in two forms. Death comes physically when we die and our bodies cease to function. But secondly, sin also produces a second death. And that second death is called hell in the Bible. It's punishment for those who reject Jesus Christ. Hell is the place of eternal separation from Almighty God. You don't want to go to hell. Don't take that lightly. Don't blow that off. Jesus Christ was not a liar. And time after time, the Lord Jesus Christ referred to the place called hell. So he is the Savior. The angel said to the shepherds, Don't fear. The one who has come who will deliver us from the penalty of sin. But secondly, he delivers us from the power of sin. The power of sin. And by that I mean that when you get saved, the Holy Spirit comes and lives in your heart. And the Holy Spirit of God, if you're surrendered to him, can give you the power to live a life of victory over sin. Not only are we saved from the penalty of sin, which is hell, we're saved from the power of sin to control us. 
And we know the addictive power of sin. We know how that sin can absolutely bind people, can put them in bondage where it totally controls their lives. And we have a Savior today. Fear not. One who has come who can break the power of sin. He can give you the power to live a holy life, the power to live a righteous life, not a perfect life, but thank God a victorious life, a life where you know that you don't have to be subject to every whim that comes into your mind. You can have power in your life. But thirdly, it means something else, Savior, because the Savior is one who can save us from the presence of sin. And, boy, this world today is a sinful place. It's full of evil. The Bible says, refers to, a, to the world around us as this present evil world. And by and large, the trends in this world are away from God. They are towards sin. And Jesus Christ someday is going to deliver me from the presence of sin. Now, we call that heaven. Heaven, the place that the soul and spirit goes when we die. The place that at the resurrection, he will rejoin the soul, the spirit, and the body. And he will take us literally, physically to that place. And so, the Savior that was born at Christmas time, whose birthday we're still celebrating, is the one who can deliver me from the penalty of sin, hell, from the power of sin to control my life, from the presence of sin. He someday will take me into heaven to be with him forever. My, no wonder the, the angel had a great message. And he said, it's tidings of great joy. You haven't heard that much good news anywhere else, I promise you, because only the Bible can give us that kind of hope and that kind of encouragement. Now, speaking about Jesus being the Savior <clears throat> made me think about salvation uh, this week. And I, I wrote down five things, and, I, and you might want to note them there in your Bible, in the mar margin of your Bible. Five things I want you to never forget about salvation. They are really important. In fact, if you'll get these five things, you will basically understand the Christian plan of salvation uh, very, very thoroughly, in fact. Number one, the basis of salvation is the cross. The basis of salvation is the cross. There would be no salvation without the cross. That's why we display it up here behind me in the baptistry. Because somebody had to pay the penalty for sin. I either had to pay my own penalty for sin or I have to trust in the Lord. And Jesus Christ came, praise his name, and he paid the penalty. He, he bore my sins in his body on the cross. So the basis of my salvation is very simple. It's not the church. It's not the preacher. It's not a profession of faith. It's not good works. The basis of salvation very clearly is the cross of Jesus Christ. Number two, the motivation of salvation. Why did God even care if we were saved or not? What was it that motivated the heart of God to send his son into the world during the Christmas season? The motivation for salvation is God's grace. His love for us. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That is the motivation that God had in even providing us the gift of salvation. Grace means that salvation is unmerited. It is undeserved. It is unearned. None of us would be saved except for God's grace. 
He loved us when we didn't even know him, when we didn't care about him. So the motivation for God providing us salvation is his grace. Number three, the instrument of salvation is faith. So I reach out my empty hand like a beggar reaches out his hand to someone who's about to give him money. And I reach out my empty hand because my hand is empty of anything that God could want or desire. And God gives me the gift of salvation. By grace are you saved through faith. It's not of yourself. It is a gift that God places in our hands and in our hearts. The instrument to achieve and acquire salvation is faith. Number four, the result of salvation, the result of salvation is good works. You see, in Ephesians 2.10, it follows that verse. It says that we're saved by grace through faith. But then it says, we are his workmanship created by God unto good works. And if a tree is alive and healthy, the tree produces fruit. If a tree doesn't produce any fruit, if you have an apple tree, we'll say, and it never has any apples on it, or the only apples on the tree are gnarly and, and, and small and sour and, and undesirable, then there's something wrong with that tree, something very seriously wrong with that tree. The normal thing is that the tree would produce good edible fruit. And if a person says, I'm a Christian, and there's no works, there's no fruit, there's no good deeds accompanying them, then I want to tell you, you need to check. There's something wrong with the tree. There's something wrong really at the root, isn't it? Because salvation, the result of salvation is good works, just like the tree produces good fruit. And the last thing, number five, is the confidence in our salvation that we have. Philippians 1.16 being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. What does that mean? When I got saved, it was like a little embryo that God planted in my heart spiritually, in my soul. And as I nurture that, as I read my Bible, as I pray, as I fellowship with God's people and go to church, as I serve the Lord, as I carry out the things that the Lord has asked me to do, then my salvation grows. And that little thing that started maybe at an altar, walking an aisle, coming to Christ, that I'm confident that that good thing that he begun in me, he's going to continue to perform that until the day that the Lord Jesus Christ returns. Let me give you those five things again because I want you to never forget them. The basis of salvation is the cross. The motivation of salvation is God's grace. The instrument by which I acquire salvation is faith. The result of salvation is good works demonstrated in my life. And the confidence of salvation is that God who begun a work in me is going to perform it until the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I want to show you something else. I'm spending more time on this point than I will the others. But this one is so vital. And I want you to go down to verse number uh, 25 with me. And Mary and Joseph, eight days have passed. They've gone from Bethlehem up to Jerusalem. 
They've gone to the temple where they are going to take the baby and they're going to perform the rite of circumcision. Every male Jewish child, of course, was circumcised on the eighth day. And in verse 25 of chapter 2, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. The same man was just and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. The consolation of Israel was the coming of the Lord. He's waiting for this very moment. The Holy Ghost was upon him. It was revealed unto him by the Holy Ghost that he should not see death. He wouldn't die until he had seen the Lord's Christ. So he came by the Spirit to the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him after the custom of the law, the circumcision ritual, he took him up in his arms and he blessed God. And he said, Lord, now let thy servant depart in peace according to thy word. Here's the verse. For mine eyes have seen thy salvation. You know what is wonderful about that verse? Salvation can be seen. Salvation is not the church and the preacher and even doing things like reading the Bible and praying and all that. That accompanies salvation. And here is this old man. God has revealed to him, I'm going to let you live until you actually see the Christ that has been promised. And now Christ has come. Can you picture him? He is in the temple the people are gathered around, lots of activities going on. A priest is standing by with his knife to circumcise this little boy. And this old man walks up, and maybe they recognize him, or the priest introduces him. And the priest says, Let me hold the baby. And he takes eight day old Jesus and holds him in his arms, cradles him here, and he looks up to God and he said, I'm ready to go to depart in peace. Mine eyes have seen salvation. You see, here's the point. Salvation is a person. It's not a process, not a church, not a creed, not good works. Salvation is a person. And who is that person? That person is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Isn't that wonderful today? I'll tell you, when I read that verse, I'm blessed every time. Salvation is a person. He could look down and say, that's salvation, looking at that baby. In 1981, I remember the day that the news came on, and President Ronald Reagan had been shot. And for several hours, maybe for a day, the nation feared that maybe he was going to die. And they called his pastor in California who flew across the country in an emergency flight to be with the president. And the story is that he walked into the room very, very somber. Everybody was praying and hoping that somehow the president would make it. And the pastor took Ronald Reagan's hand and he held it and he said, Mr. President, how is it with you and the Lord? And President Reagan said, I'm okay, Pastor. And the pastor pressed his point because he thought, man, this man may not make it here. And the pastor said, Mr. President, how do you know that it's okay with the Lord? And Reagan said, I have a 
Savior. I have a Savior. Boy, that's all you need to be able to say, huh? I've repented of my sins. I've put my life in his hands. He is salvation. I have a Savior. Now, there's a second fear not. And go backwards now with me to chapter 1 and verse number 25. So we have point one, fear not, salvation has come. Point two, fear not because he's the God of the impossible. Fear not today because he is the God of the impossible. And in verse number 26, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel, the archangel, a special angel, was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin espoused to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. The angel came in unto her and said, Hail, thou that art highly favored, the Lord is with you. Blessed art thou among women. And when Mary saw the angel, she was troubled. These angels bother people, don't they? They trouble people. And so she was troubled at his saying, and cast in her mind what manner of salutation this should be. And the angel said unto her, Fear not, Mary. There again, a person is troubled, a person is anxious, and God's word says to them, Fear not, for you have found favor with God. For behold, you will conceive in thy womb and bring forth a son and call his name Jesus. And Mary, in verse number 34, said then to the angel, Well, that's impossible. How could that be? I know not a man. And in verse number 37, the verse we put on the screen here before the services to always remind you of it, For with God nothing shall be impossible. And so we see Mary, little Mary, a little virgin girl in a little tiny town, not thinking anything special of herself. And suddenly in front of her, here's this angel, just like the shepherd saw the angel. And her response was, she's troubled. And then the angel said, don't fear, Mary. You found favor with God. Well, her response after he had told her why she had been favored was, how can this be? This is impossible. I haven't known a man. And the angel reminded her, with God, nothing is impossible. I think we need to hear that today in America, don't you? With God, nothing is impossible. Mary believed in God. And a biblical view of God, hear me, a biblical view of God requires you to believe in miracles. There is no such thing as a person who says, I really believe in the God of the Bible, but I don't believe in supernatural events. You can't believe in God without believing in the supernatural. And here's the, here's the logic of that. If God could create the universe, then there's nothing that he can't do. If he really, in fact, is the creator. Or another way to say it is if you believe Genesis 1-1, you don't have any problem believing the rest of the miracles in the Bible. If God could speak a world into existence, you don't think he can implant a baby in a mother's womb? If God could speak a world into existence, you don't think God has the power to heal somebody? 
If God can speak a world into existence, can he solve your problem even though it may seem impossible to you? Monday night, they told us to look out for the great conjunction. The great conjunction. And so Norman and I walked out on the patio in front of the house, and we looked to the southwest, and there it was. Boy, you didn't have to look for it. It was as clear as it could be. And what you had was the alignment, of course, of the planet Jupiter, and Saturn in its orbit had come around and was right behind it. Not right behind it. 476 million years right behind or miles right behind it. <laughs> but they were so closely aligned in conjunction that when you looked at them, it looked like one star. And we stood there and looked at it. We looked at it for a while. We looked at it till we got so cold we had to go in. But we enjoyed it. And I, you know, I wanted, I guess my neighbors would have thought I was crazy and it kind of was inhibited and I shouldn't have been. I wanted to break out and sing to the top of my voice, Oh, Lord, my God, how great thou art. Because I looked up there through that. How far was it to Jupiter? I have no idea. Further than it is from here to Pamplico, I can tell you that. And then 476 million miles, there's the other planet. And how could we know that they were going to align? Well, we knew that years ago. They haven't done that in 800 and some years. And yet they perfectly aligned. And we stood there and looked at, how, how did the astronomers know they were going to come into alignment? Because there is a God who created the universe and all this random stuff is a bunch of junk. Don't ever believe it. God organized a universe and you can predict something that happens once every 800 years. Thank you. Amen. Boy, that, that blesses me, doesn't it, you? Wow, what a God we have. And you're facing an impossible situation. Well, let me tell you today, my friend, God is able. God is not impotent. God is, has not been weakened one bit by time. Our God is on the throne. He's transcendent. He's supernatural. He oversees this universe that he created. And I want you to be able today to trust him. He's the God of the impossible. Number three, we continue in chapter one, but we go backwards. And here is a man who is a priest. His name is Zacharias. Zacharias has been a priest for a long time. He and his wife, Elizabeth, have been praying for a child. And God has never given them a child. They are childless, a childless couple. This is a very big day in his life. Let me tell you why. Um, because the priests, there were hundreds of priests, of course. And a priest only was able to lead the services of worship at the temple every so often, maybe only once or twice in his entire life. And today is Zacharias' big day. If you will look with me. In verse 8, chapter 1, it came to pass while he executed the priest's office before God in the order of his course, meaning when it came his time, his rotation, according to the custom of the priest's office, 
His lot was to burn the incense when he went up into the temple of the Lord. And a multitude of people were gathered there that day praying as he burned the incense. And suddenly there appeared unto him an angel of the Lord, very precise, standing on the right side of the altar. And Zacharias saw the angel, and like Mary and the shepherds, he was troubled. He was full of fear. And fear fell upon him. And the angel said to him, just like he had said to the shepherds and Mary, Fear not. Fear not, Zacharias. Thy prayer is heard. Thy wife, Elizabeth, shall bear a son. So he's carrying out his priestly duties. He's offering an incense offering, and suddenly there's this figure. Startles him. He's never seen an angel before. And the first word of the angel is what? Fear not. Don't be afraid. I'm not here to trouble you. And I'm here to tell you your prayer has been heard. You and Elizabeth have been praying all these years, 20, 30 years now, for a child. It's not been my will to give you a child up until now. But now the time has come. Your wife is going to be pregnant. Even though you're by the age of childbearing, fear not. She's going to give you a child. And you're going to name him John. And we know the rest of the story. After a long, long delay, God in his time and in his way chooses to answer this man's prayer. So here's the principle. Fear not. God answers prayer. Point one, fear not. Salvation has come. Point two, fear not. God is the God of the impossible. Number three, fear not, God answers prayer. Boy, our Lord really emphasized this in a number of places in the Scripture. Luke chapter 18 and verse 1, Jesus said, Men ought always to pray. Men ought always to pray and not to faint. Faint means to give up, to quit praying. Men ought always to pray and never to give up or to faint. You know, I've thought so much about prayer. I think maybe I've preached on prayer more than any subject. I've studied it maybe as much as any subject. And I wish I knew more than I know about prayer, but I do know one thing about prayer. I know that God doesn't give us everything for which we ask. I know that there are conditions for answered prayer. For example, one of them is... If I regard iniquity in my life, the Lord will not hear me. If there's sin, it's unconfessed and known in my life. God won't hear my prayer until I confess that and renounce that. And so I know there are those conditions that I have to have in my life. But secondly, there's the big condition, the greatest condition, is of the will of God. 1 John chapter 5 and verse 14 says, If we ask anything according to his will, he heareth us. If I ask according to his will, he heareth us. He answers my prayer. So when I pray, I ask God for things, and, but I don't really know what things are his will always. Now, there's several things in the Bible that 
specifically, this is the will of God. For example, it's not his will that any should perish. This is the will of God that you don't commit fornication, 1 Thessalonians. Several things, very specific. But then there's all these other things in life, and I don't know the will of God for them. Right now, we're praying for a lot of sick people. I don't know the will of God for those people. I pray for them, believing God can and that he will heal them. But I don't know his will for individual lives, you see. And so I pray on, but I can't say for sure if I pray for this person, they're going to be, uh, they're going to be healed. And you pray about other issues in life, your children, issues at work. But you don't really know because the Bible hasn't specifically addressed that issue. So you don't always know the will of God. Here's what I want you to get from my point, though, and what Zacharias came to understand. All these years, he's prayed for this child, and now it's the will of God to give it to him right now. Now listen to me. When you don't get what you ask for when you pray, the tendency of unbelief among people is this. Well, I've been praying about that for years. God won't answer my prayer. I just don't know if I believe that God even answers prayer. And they just write the whole thing off in unbelief. Oh, my friend, don't ever do that. Men ought always to pray and not to faint. Here's the thing. I don't quit praying because God didn't answer a specific prayer. I submit to the Lord's will. What did Jesus say in the Garden of Gethsemane? He said, not my will, but thine be done. He said, Lord, if it's your will, deliver me. But it was not God's will for him to be delivered. And he had to go to the cross and pay for our sin. When you don't get what you ask, don't get angry at God and blame him. Don't quit praying either. Submit to the will of God. You don't know that yet that prayer will be answered. But you don't know what the will of God is. So you pray about everything and you trust the Lord for what you don't know. And lastly, you'll have to go out of Luke and go back to Matthew with me. And in chapter number 1 and verse number 20. Matthew 1 and 20. And this is talking about Joseph, the husband of Mary, being a just man, not willing to make her a public example, was thinking about putting her away privately. But while he thought on those things, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, fear not. Now, he was fearing. His fear was based upon the fact that Mary was pregnant And he was betrothed to her, which was the same as already being married in that culture. And what in the world is he going to do with a pregnant wife that he's not even consummated the marriage yet? And so he's troubled about it. And the angel comes to him and he says, don't fear. That which is conceived in your wife is of the Holy Spirit. And she shall bring forth a son and you will call his name Jesus, which means Savior. For he will save his people from their sins. And so the angel 
assuaged his fears. And he said, don't fear to do the will of God. So what is the point? Fear not, God blesses your obedience. Fear not, God always blesses obedience. My friend, I say to you today, don't you ever fear doing the will of God. I know people who have said to me, you know, I'd really surrender to the Lord. But man, if, if I really surrender to the Lord, he might call me to preach. He might call me to be a missionary. He might call, you know, if I surrender to the will of God, I might not be able to marry this, this guy or gal that I'm interested in. Now, don't you ever, ever be afraid of obeying the Lord. Joseph was afraid of continuing through with the marriage and the angel said, don't you fear obedience. God always blesses your obedience. It's his will that everybody be saved. It's his will that every one of us live a holy life, that we live righteously and godly. It's his will that we never forsake assembling together as the manner of some is. It's his will that we share the gospel with every opportunity that we get. It's his will that we tithe and support the Lord's work, our missionaries, our churches. It's his will that we bring our children up to fear him and to know him and to love him. Don't you ever be afraid of the will of God. You pursue it with all your might and all your heart. So, let's review. Four fear nots in the Christmas story. Fear not, shepherds, salvation is come. Fear not, Mary, because God is the God of the impossible. Fear not, Zacharias, priest and man of God, because God will answer prayer. And fear not, Joseph, because God will bless you. He always blesses obedience. Stand to your feet with me, if you will, and your heads bowed, please.